Thessalonians 4, 9-12. I don't know if you're a sports fan, any of you. I suppose you don't really need to like football to have seen this, although it seems that football players and football managers are especially adept at the cliched response uh, to the pundits' questions. Have you seen this? It's almost like they've got um, a, a stock of 10 automatic responses. You know, oh, how did you feel that you played today? That was a good game. It was a particularly fast on the wing there. Oh, I, it was uh, just all about the three points. There's the first one that comes out. And, uh, you know, we're just, uh, all that matters is focusing on the next game. And you see this? Is it just me that notices this? I, I have some fun when I'm watching this because I try to guess what the next comment's going to be that comes out. It's good fun. It's like footballer bingo. Anyway. Well, I was struck this week uh, because in th three different people, uh, in three different roles, came out with the very same cliché. And it struck me, you know, it was, it was, there was Harry Winks, the Tottenham midfielder, lauded for his breaking into the first team at Tottenham, for making his England debut, uh, for his composed performance against Real Madrid. Then there was Anthony Joshua, the, you know, the uh, world heavyweight champion boxer. And then there was Jose Mourinho with his long list of... Uh, championship titles. These men were being praised for their achievements in sports, and every single one of them, without fail, said, we cannot rest on your laurels. Have you heard that saying before? You know what the laurel is? The laurel is, of course, the wreath of achievement that was given to people back in the Grecian Empire and then in the Roman Empire. Um, but this saying, to don't, you can never rest on your laurels, really emerged in that culture so that people didn't just kind of put their feet up and relax at the achievements that they had already achieved, but actually pressed on to try and do more and more. And I, I want to say tonight that in relation to what we see in chapters 4, um, the Apostle Paul is really trying to say the same things to the Thessalonians, you're doing really well in these different areas, but you can never rest on your laurels. Uh, the achievements that they have achieved, of course, of faith, hope, and love being evident among them, of the, the great way that they are developing despite the persecution they're experiencing. Of course, those are great achievements and take some amount of effort and determination. And all praise goes to God. The reeds are laid at his feet, of course. But Paul encourages them in chapter 4 in various ways to not rest on their laurels. And specifically tonight, we are looking at this subject of love. We can grow more and more, even in this area of love. And we're going to read from verses 9 to 12 tonight, where Paul really tells them in this subject of love, what he wants them to do, and gives them a very specific example of how he wants them to do it. So let's pray together first, and then we'll read. Father, uh, your word tells us that your instructions are to be treasured. You say that by them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Lord, may we hear these instructions now, so that through our lives more people will come to treasure you as we treasure them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves 
have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Amen. This is God's word. So the first point is very, very obvious. What is Paul's subject? It's love, okay? Love one another more and more. That's point one tonight. Um, We can be really good as a church family at loving one another, okay? The Thessalonians certainly were. If you look with me again at verse 9, Paul says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. Paul says, I don't really need to give you any kind of detailed instruction on this, just like I have done in relation to sexual purity in the verses that went before. It's as if he's saying, like, you're brilliant at it. We saw in chapter 1 and verse 3 that they have demonstrated, evidenced a love that labors, uh, a love that rolls up its sleeves for each other, a love that lays itself down for each other. And there's only one real explanation for that kind of love, according to the Apostle Paul. It's that God has taught them. Now, remember he's saying this because he was with them only for a short time and then was driven out by persecution He hadn't had the opportunity to spend time with them, to teach them, to disciple them in the ways of, well, in detailed ways to love one another, for example. And so in his absence, what he's seen is that God has been at work to teach them. I wonder if you, it says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. I wonder if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about how the word of God works in us like a tablet. Uh, like medicine. Long after it's been ingested, it is still at work. And in this, here in this little passage, we've got some insight into just how that's happened and in what particular area of life that has happened, their love for each other. God is at work in each of us to teach us to apply the truth that we hear to our hearts, not just in the moment when we hear the thing being taught, But even as we were thinking about this morning, as we think, as we direct our minds and our thoughts to those teachings regularly throughout our daily lives. And Paul has taught them about loving one another. We see that in verse 2, where he says, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then he talks about sexual purity. Then he talks about loving one another. And everything that he writes in chapters 4 and 5 really is, is revision for them then. But they've been taught by God to love each other. Well, and God is that greater and better teacher. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work. And he's fulfilling the very things that Jesus promised. He gives us understanding. He leads us into truth. He's the one who reminds us of the teachings of Jesus and transforms us by it. Now, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus has the Holy Spirit in them. And let us never, ever forget what an absolute privilege and joy that that is. What confidence we have in the transformation that is held out for us to attain, to to pursue Christ-likeness. What encouragement that is to us that the one who is in us, the Holy Spirit, is deity himself, shaping us and forming us to be like the Lord. That, to me, is a phenomenal encouragement. 
Now, God wants to teach us to love one another. That's what's important to him. And God has said uh, in many places in the Bible, love me, love my people. It's a package deal. Okay, you can't have one without the other. And now, of course, the emphasis on Christians loving one another doesn't mean that we just love other believers and then dislike or distance ourselves from everyone else. No, Matthew 22, 37 to 39 tells us, well, Jesus himself teaches us there that we are to love God and our neighbor and specifically teaches us that everyone is our neighbor. It's the point of the, good, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But Jesus did say to his followers in John chapter 13, as he gave them a new commandment, he says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. There ought to be a deep, deep love between believers that is, well, remarkable and godly, different to the love that we see in the world. Now, the Thessalonian church understood this. Even in their infancy, they understood that love for each other really is the natural result of being loved by God, uh, which we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, and of loving God. You see, when he saves you from your sins, he changes your heart. And part of the change that he brings is the change in what you love. So he makes you to be like him, to love what he loves, and he loves his church. He loves his church with a passion. You only have to see, read passages like Ephesians 1, which talk about love being the motivation behind this eternal plan to call out from the world a people for himself. You only have to read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's patently clear for us. Now, Paul says this love is enjoyed, that love is enjoyed by others in our own local church, but not only in our own local church family. We ought to have love for one another, yes, but also love for the brothers and sisters beyond our own local church family. That's what he sees in the Thessalonians. God has taught you to love each other and all God's family throughout Macedonia. Now, Macedonia in the Bible, by the way, in the New Testament, is not the country of Macedonia as we see it today. It's basically northern Greece, um, which is Greece. Um, but what we see is Paul saying to them, your love is so remarkable Thessalonians. It's not only enjoyed by the people in your own church family, it's enjoyed by people in other places. That's how selfless they were. That's how attentive they were to the needs of other people. Now, we don't really know the exact details of how they demonstrated that love or what Paul in particular sees of that love. It may be that they have shown uh, hospitality the brothers, to the brothers and sisters from northern Greece as they came down to visit the city of Thessalonica. They didn't have like holiday inns and hotels back then, really. So what, you, what was most common in Grecian culture was that you went to stay in a place where you depended on the kindness and the hospitality of people there. It's like Airbnb, really, isn't it? Um, before it arrived. Anyway, it could be, that's where they got the idea from, see? It, but it, but, or it could be that they've sent this financial gift to believers in another church somewhere. We know that that was certainly taking place. But what we do know is that they love the church locally and, if you like, globally. 
Now, I want to ask this question of us. How are we loving one another? And are we up for the challenge of loving one another more and more? In what ways is God at work in us to teach us to love each other? Perhaps the best way to answer that question is to stop and think for a second of all the ways that you've been loved by people in this church family. Think about it, just for a second. How have you experienced love? I don't really think it takes an awful long time for those who are plugged in, connected to one another to experience love from each other, from things as simple as a, a meal being provided to something as profound as a gentle rebuke, which is a very, very important sign of love. And to be loved like this in many and varied ways is a real evidence of us being taught by God and evidence of grace. We ought to be thankful. So we, like the Thessalonians, can be really good at loving one another, and I want to encourage us in that. We see many ways that love is shown between the members of our church family, but we still have room to grow. This is the challenge that Paul is laying before us. We still have room to grow. Let's love each other more and more. You see that in verse 10? Look with me. So he's saying, you're doing really well. You love everyone in your church family and people indifferent who are not in your church family. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. He's like, you see all these things you're doing? Keep doing that and do it more and more. The hospitality you're showing. Think about how you can take that up a level. The generosity you've demonstrated. Think about how you can take that up a level. Can you give a little bit more in that area? Spending time with people going through hard times, great. But what might that look like on an ongoing basis? Not just a temporary basis. How can you demonstrate your love in simple yet practical and profound ways? And here's where we see the whole notion of the sports cliche does not exist in the family of God. Not when Christ-likeness is the goal. Not when true godliness is the target. There is no possibility and no option for us to rest on our laurels. There's always room to grow. So how? How can we grow in our love for each other? Well, there are various ways. I've got three suggestions for us, but I want you to go away and think about this. How can I grow in my love for my brothers and sisters? Here's one way. You can love God more. That has to be the number one way to love each other better. It has to be number one on everybody's list. Love God more. Fuel your love for him by reading your Bible, by talking with each other about him, by making sure you don't miss church so you can sing songs like we're singing that fuel our affections. Amazing love, how can it be? Singing songs like this works to fuel our heart's affection. Think together about all that God has done and pray to him. Talk to him. Take time to remember what he saved you from. Remember your sins, not to be burdened by them, but to remember how free you are from them. Remember how great this salvation is that you now know in Christ. How great is the gospel 
of our glorious Lord. Is it the most phenomenal thing for your mind to set your thoughts on? It must be. Love God more. In Luke 7, Jesus teaches a parable that compares really how, well, I suppose he's teaching a, a Pharisee how this Pharisee and a sinful woman who comes in treat Jesus. He puts them both side by side and tries to figure out what's going on. He teaches this lesson where he basically says, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. In other words, she knows her sin and she knows his grace. But he loves little who has been forgiven little. In other words, this Pharisee didn't really understand how much he needed this grace. He thought he was a lot better than he was, but because he knew who he was and because she, because she knew who Jesus was, because she knew who she was, her love for him was poured out effusively. Now, the reason for all of this is simple. We love others best when we love God the most. We love others best when we love God the most. Therefore, find ways to love God more. Secondly, pray for each other. Don't our hearts, don't we find that when we pray for one another, our hearts are moved not just to ask God to do great things in one another's lives, but we feel this compulsion and this selfless desire to do something for that brother or sister. Good. That's the way it works. Uh, God often uses us and our heart's desires and our, uses us to minister to people in their particular needs. But thinking about other people while you're in the presence of God is crucial. Have you got a, a membership directory? Have you downloaded Church Suite so that you've got everybody, if you're a member, have you got a list of everyone's names? Pray through that. It is, that's what we do as a pastoral team. We pray through the, the names of everyone in our membership. It's a great thing to do. Thirdly, we could analyze our behavior or better still, invite someone else to help us analyze our behavior too. Why not take a situation that's occurred in the past few weeks where it was obvious that you weren't loving someone the way you ought to, and it was obvious to you, and then take a scalpel to it. Examine your heart in that situation. What's going on there? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What did you want to see happen in that situation? What was wrong with that? I think one of the ways that we can identify and excise unloving behavior is often to look at areas and times when we've been angry in the past week. We, we get angry when something upsets us. This, this, is, this upsets me, and this matters to me. Now, most often, that anger is an inappropriate response to the situation. But it's worth exploring those kind of scenarios to say, okay, what is it that made me angry? What did I want in that situation? Why am I so upset about this? And why did I act in such an unloving way? And replay it in your mind, thinking through, 
well, what way could I have done that? And seek to apply that next time it happens. Well, I found that kind of thing to be really, really helpful. Listen, identifying and excising this, these unloving attitudes and behaviors is, is really what Paul goes on to do in verses 11 and 12, where he takes the principle that he's just taught in verses 9 and 10, that is to love one another more and more, and applies it to one area of the church's life. And in particular, what he looks at here in verses 11 and 12 is idleness, sitting on your hands, not doing work to make yourself a living. And Paul says, this is not a loving thing to do. Let's look at it together, because he instructs these idlers to love each other, specifically here, by living a quiet life. Now, point two for this, if you're taking notes, is um, the first point one is love one another more and more, and point two is in a thousand little ways. Okay, I'm going to explain why it's not just live a quiet life in a few moments, but in a thousand ways, okay? For them, specifically to them, he calls on them to live a quiet life. There are two common themes in the context of this, um, uh, this book and in the life of the Thessalonians, really. We see it in two Thessalonians also. These two themes are the return of Christ and idleness. It seems like they are particularly excited about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they think it's imminent, and some might be getting either too excited or maybe even abusing the prospect of it by, by phoning in sick and sitting on their front lawn watching the clouds, okay? They're, they're, they think it's that imminent. But then when Jesus doesn't come back in that particular afternoon, when dinner time comes and their tummy rumbles, these guys have nothing to eat. In a, in, a, in a society where you didn't get paid at the end of the month into your bank account, you basically got paid the, the coin in your hand at the end of the day uh, from your supervisor. Most people worked in uh, labor. But they, had, they got to the end of the day, they hadn't done any work, therefore they had no coin, they had no money to go and buy some food. So what did they do? They knock on the door of their Christian friends. But what has happened is that they're doing this a bit too much, and they're burdening others because of their own, well, Paul calls it laziness. They're just being idle, sitting on their hands. For them, it was all about getting and not about giving. Do you see how that's unloving? I mean, it would cost that brother or sister providing the meal to feed them. It eats into what they have earned. And spending money on the idler meant less, having less to spend on someone else, like an unbeliever that they could have, that they could have had over to tea or something like that. And what's more, spending this much time in other people's homes was having this, almost having this disruptive effect on the life of the church. Paul addresses that here. Now, that's why Paul goes on to give them this specific counsel. Here's how lazy and idle people in Thessalonica Baptist Church were to love their brothers and sisters more and more, right? He says, look with me, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I read one paraphrase this week that said, make it your ambition to have no ambition. But he says, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. So he's already taught this again. And it's very practical advice. Make it your ambition to live in a way that doesn't cause disruption in the life of your church family, unnecessarily so. It will come, 
because we're sinners and we rub up against each other and because when one falls and upsets, you know, it has an impact on the body, which is what we are. And then he says, but instead of poking your nose into other people's business, just mind your own business. Get a job and earn your living so that you won't be dependent on anyone else. That's what Paul is teaching them to do here. Now, can you see why it's unloving? They are, they are putting too much emphasis on the getting. They're enjoying the getting and not doing enough of the giving. When Jesus himself had taught that it's better to give than to receive. And that, of course, is love, evidenced by his own self-sacrifice. Now, Paul isn't speaking out against the kind of person who would like to get a job but can't because of ill health. He's talking about people who could but don't. So he's trying to help them see that these simple instructions provide even a simple platform for taking their love for the church up a level. Because you notice that how the two, the two comments about loving one another and about living a quiet life are held together. The sentence continues. Look at the end of verse 10. Do so more and more, comma, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. This is the way that some people in the church ought to love one another. So make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Now, I, I don't think that this is a particularly major issue in the life of Charlotte Chapel, do you? I don't think we're not going out and doing a day's work so that we can sit on our front lawns and watch the sky for Jesus coming back. If anything, I think we could do with having a greater longing for the return of Jesus and to be better at living in the light of his return. I think we're far too comfortable. I am. But neither are we overly dependent on each other for food at the end of the day, although we can attach ourselves to each other in ways that does become a burden. Let's be honest about that. Nevertheless, we ought to be taking the very principles that are applied here and the example that's given us, that the, exact, the, the principle of loving one another more and more and the example, which is really just quite a tiny detail in the life of the church, it teaches us that we should be concerned about the little ways that unloving behavior by us can put an unhelpful strain on the church family and so badly affect our love for each other and our witness. Do you understand? We should be concerned about the little ways that our bad behavior, sinful, unloving behavior, affects the body and affects our witness. It can be so easy to overlook the impact of our own selfishness or to put unloving attitudes and actions down to just personality. Oh, it's just the way he is, you know. Paul didn't do that. Paul wanted the church to grow up into Christ, to be changed bit by bit into his likeness, and that's why he addressed idleness in that church, and that's why I think he would address a thousand little things in our own church. It's right to be concerned about these unloving thoughts and deeds and attitudes in us. 
And there are several ways, of course, that we can act unlovingly in a church family. Have you thought about this before? We can be proud. In every area of Christian discipleship, please understand this. Pride is your greatest enemy. Humility, your greatest friend. Proud people are self-seeking people, and self-seeking people are unloving people. Humble people like Jesus, laying aside the majesty of heaven, the rights and privileges of the eternal sonship to come into this world to a manger, to a cross, to the spit and the taunts of the people who hung him there. That's humility. For us, that's humility. Each other's needs to prefer, we sang earlier. True. Brothers and sisters, you will always rob people of the love that you could have shown them when you choose to love yourself too much. Well, secondly, you can not serve. This is another way that we can act unlovingly in a church family. You can choose to join a church family and not share the load of doing the ministry that we seek to do together for the building up of the church and the spread of the gospel. The Bible teaches us that um, in 1 Corinthians 12 that everybody's given a spiritual gift. There is a particular place, a particular part that you have in the body to the extent that no one can say to you, I don't need you. And you can't say to anyone else, I'm not needed. It's abolished those two arguments. Everyone is needed. We all play an important part in the body, whether you're a little finger or a big toe, whatever. Everybody has a part to play. Big toe is very important in balance. But you can demonstrate an unloving activity by not serving in the life of the church. Maybe we need to think about that. Maybe that's the way that you could take your love for the church up a level. I even saw up there that folks are looking for before the service, there's folks are looking for help in some way. Read the bulletin. There's always help required in some particular area. Maybe you can serve in a particular way. There's another way that we can be unloving in our church family. You cannot give. Generosity is one of the clearest expressions of love, and giving our money to the work of the gospel through our local church family is one of the ways that we do that. And the Bible has clear instructions on this. But if we don't give to the work and the witness of the church, then maybe you're the kind of, you're a getter rather than a giver, like the Thessalonians, the idle Thessalonians were. Well, that's not showing love. So maybe that's the way that you can take your love for the Lord up a level, by being more generous. It doesn't have to be with your money. It can be with your time. It can be with your energy. Another way that you can act unlovingly in the life of a church family is you can harbor a grudge. You can allow hurt to turn into hate through unforgiveness, and you stroke this resentment like you're entitled to. Well, that's unloving. You will not act in the most loving way possible to those that you resent, and in doing so, you will sin. That behavior affects that relationship within the body of Christ. Another way, you can make yourself too busy to spend time with your church family. But God has designed the church like a body so that every member plays its parts. You cannot read the New Testament without reading again and again and again. There must be about 20, I think there are 23 
main one another, explicit one another statements, never mind the implied one anothering. 23, which basically says that, that the Lone Ranger Christian is going to struggle. The Lone Ranger Christian who thinks that they can live without the body of Christ is actually acting unlovingly. Another way, you can sin in hidden ways. We need to realize this. Our sin has an impact on others, even when we sin in secret. Because when we sin in secret, we withdraw, even to a small extent, from those in our church family that we're supposed to love. I think it's a fear thing, really. There's, we almost worry that when we, even though we're concealing this hidden sin, that when we gather together, somebody's going to just look into our eyes and see right through us. And that's why often one of the key indicators that someone is going off track in ungodly ways is withdrawal from the body. As we'll see in Hebrews 10 later on in our series, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That withdrawal, that not meeting together is often a sign of loving sin. So it's unloving to do in secret the things that hinder your ability to love others when you gather together. What's it going to be for you? I've tried to give you a range of examples. The Holy Spirit is at work in you to teach you how to love one another more and more in a thousand little ways. What's that going to look like for you this week? Pick something. Pick one thing, one area where you think, Lord, please help me to grow in this. And seek accountability of a friend, a brother and sister here and say, okay, for me, it's going to be anger. Please pray for me so that if I'm angry, I know how to deal with it in the right way. I don't want to be a defensive person. I want to be a loving person, for example. This is where we praise God for the gospel, right? Because these are all signs. These are all things that the Lord God in his good. Jesus died for all of these unloving acts, brothers and sisters, so that you can freely, with his spirit at work in you, pursue the loving life that he has demonstrated for us and one for us. You are, through your justification, positionally righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're on the sanctification trail. You're pursuing that perfection. You're already there in God's eyes. You're not trying to win God's favor by making these changes in your life. You're just getting that little bit closer. You'll never get there until you die. When you die, you go, boom, righteous. Or when Jesus comes back, right? But that doesn't mean you can rest on your laurels. Just because you'll never make it until you actually die. No. Do so more and more. We urge you more and more. Changed bit by bit with ever increasing glory into his likeness. Ah, love it. So love one another more in a thousand little ways by being ambitious about change this week, brothers and sisters. Make it your ambition. Have a wee change project. Not to put the church family under any unnecessary strain. Figure out what that's going to be for you and work on it. That's your homework. And there's one final, final thing to say from this passage. The ultimate reason why this matters 
is that if you don't seek to love one another more and more and grow in this in a thousand little ways, you might just not be loving your neighbor. Because this matters for mission. Our love for one another matters because our love has something to say to those who are outside of us. So we see in verse 12, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, etc., so that, purpose, your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Insider love is attractive to outsiders. A love that labors and lays itself down, a love that forgives, a love that's kind, a love that doesn't harbor resentment, diffuses the hostility in those who ignore or even look unfavorably on the church. Love wins respect, deep respect. I think we see this, don't we, surely? I mean, humans in every culture have always admired the most selfless, even self-sacrificial expressions of love, far more than these kind of desperate acts of self-preservation that we tend to see in people. That's why we love a good hero. I've got a confession to make. I watched the movie San Andreas. I don't know what I was thinking. It's about an earthquake with this guy called The Rock in it. He's got, his other name's Dwayne. I think that's why he calls himself The Rock. But um, anyway, there's this in this story. Has anyone seen it? Hands up. Oh, no, two people. That's terrible. Well, that's good, actually. I'm glad it's not more. It was a waste of an hour and a half of my life. Anyway. Anyway, there's this story where it's a bit of a sad situation where there's this stepdad is, uh, uh, and his stepdaughter, he's taken her off to this hotel, and then there's a huge, like, earth-shattering earthquake, right? And he deserts her to save his own skin. You rotter. And at the same time, here's the rock, the real dad, you know, driving speedboats, flying airplanes, all this weird kind of enigmatic Hollywood style stuff in order to pursue his daughter and rescue her from certain death, putting his life on the line. Now, what a difference. The stepdad who leaves his stepdaughter behind to save his own skin compared to the dad who lays down his own life to save her instead. In humanity, people like that kind of self not self-preservation, but self-sacrifice for the sake of another. If only they would only look to the cross. Yes? To see the epitome and the pinnacle of all rescue stories. To save the seemingly unsavable. The love of a father sends a rescuer. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, have you had anyone explain to you what the cross means? Like I sat through quite a few Bible studies and heard about it a lot, but until, you know, until I actually sat down and asked someone, could you please just explain to me exactly why the cross is the centerpiece of Christianity? Why is this so important? That was the most helpful thing I did as I was exploring what it would mean to believe in God and become a Christian. Can I encourage you to do that? Like, you have permission tonight to turn around to your friend and say, can you explain to me, please, what the cross is, why it's a rescue, and let them explain it to you, all right? Or ask me at the door. I'd love to chat to you about it. But this kind of 
Love that lays itself down is attractive to outsiders, and it's essential for displaying Christ. This is what the church is, right? You've got to love the church. The church, the Charles Bridges writes about this, a Puritan guy, the church is the mirror that reflects the effulgence of the divine character. What does that mean? You're like, I mean, it means that we are the reflection of the brightness of His glory, the sum of His perfections of holiness and grace and love and kindness. We're the ones who display it and hold that light out in a dark world. And if we do not take care to help each other grow in Christ-likeness, to love one another more and more in a thousand little ways, that light will be dim. But it could be seriously bright, and it could be seriously effective if we do it. A new command I give you, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So the best thing that we can do, brothers and sisters, is to take this honest, long look at the way we love one another, to make it our ambition to do it more and more in a thousand little ways, and demonstrate that we care deeply, not only about obeying Christ, but showing Christ off to the world. By this, all people will know that we are His, if we really, if we really love one another. Let's pray.